Hi, welcome back to Motherhood Mental Health with me. I'm your host, Janetta Binion. And this episode, I speak to Nyla Ali, who is a therapist based in London. And we talk about motherhood and ancestral trauma, loneliness, and also the Migrant Women Histories Project. So this is a project where Nyla is documenting and co-creating histories of migrant women. I really hope that you enjoy the episode. So please do rate, review, comment if you're enjoying the episode and do share it with your friends as well. It really does help people find the show. Thank you and enjoy. So we'll just jump straight in. I have to say I was really moved by a lot of your posts on Instagram and and the work that you're doing and really wanted to reach out and connect with you and firstly find out a little bit about you yourself and what you do and how you spend your days yeah I'm yes a therapist Um, I work one-to-one more recently I've spent quite a bit of my time working on my project migrant women histories Um, I'm a mother yeah I think that sort of sums up how my time is taken up Mm -hmm. and how did you get into therapy interesting (laughs) in an interesting yes I think perhaps I was born a therapist but I didn't know it um, and when one of my children was in hospital uh, in surgery, I was waiting outside in a nearby sort of park square and bumped into another woman and presumed incorrectly that she was another parent. She was studying counselling in a nearby you know, sort of adult education place. She spoke about the course and it really struck a chord. Um, but at that time, my life did not have the space for such a an adventure or venture and so I just parked it and it wasn't until 11 years later when my children were a little bit older I had more mm. space and time in my head more than even in my life um, and then I started that journey to sort of start training and when I did it was like yes I'm in the right place you know I'd, I'd had a, um, a career in IT before having children um, and that was fine it was great but it was not a passion um, and when I started to train as a therapist it was yeah it really was like sort of coming home. I've only sort of learned about what therapy is and psychotherapy mm. and, and this world in the last two or three years and mm. I, I wish I'd known about it years ago. Yes absolutely. <laughs> was, absolutely. Yeah I think I would have benefited from knowing a little bit or being exposed yeah. to a little bit, you know. And um, it would be wonderful it was if it was more wi- widely available through the NHS because it is costly. And, you know, despite people trying to keep the costs down, it, you know, people have to earn a living. And so they can't offer it any cheaper than they do. But it is expensive for people. And obviously with the current living cost of living crisis, that's yeah. going to be even more difficult. And the NHS only offers short-term therapies and waiting lists are long. So that's a huge shame. So you can tell me a little bit about, obviously, I've heard that you've got one, or I don't know how many children that you have, and your experience as a mother. Well, it's my firstborn, um, who is now the grand old age of 28. <laughs> And he was born uh, initially with a cleft lip and palate, which uh, I wasn't expecting. Uh, no um, scans other than the usual ones were done. And so it was a huge shock to suddenly be faced with um, a child, which was not, you know, as you would expect a child to look. And I, in that moment, I, it's interesting, I haven't spoken about this for a long time, but I, I'm sort of right back there now. I um, I cried and it wasn't... I don't think anyway that it was because my child didn't look like every other child, but I felt I'd failed. And I remember apologising. Um, and I look back now and I, I mean, I'm in a way furious that I felt that, not furious at myself, but furious at why a woman 
who has just gone through, you know, childbirth, felt that she had failed. So that that stayed with me just, I have to say, just for a short while. Somehow there was either resilience or something, and or just I fell in love with my child as I did with all of my children. And, I, you know, yeah, it, it was never a question of why has this happened to me? Yes, in terms of how challenging it was, but not not because of who he was. So he went straight into um, intensive care. They whisked him away, which was really, really hard. And a first-time mother, I I didn't have the voice or the courage to say, no, I want him to stay with me or I'm going to go and be in the special care baby unit with him. Uh, This was 28 years ago, so things have definitely changed for the better now. So the first night I spent without him, and um, I still get emotional now because thankfully he doesn't (laughs) um, have any ill effects of that night of separation but you know um, studying as a therapist and attachment theory is something that yeah I took a particular interest in and I you know I look back and I you know it felt wrong it felt wrong to be separated from him but I feel that I did repair that rupture but it, it was a it was a really lonely place really vulnerable place to be that first night um, and then also uh, you know, even beyond that, it was a fairly lonely journey in that only a person who's going through it, only parents who are going through having such a child of whatever additional needs, only they really know that experience, however well-meaning family and supportive and kind and loving they are, and they were. Um, and I have to say, I, I didn't get any, I don't think I ever got negative reactions, and I don't think he in his life has a, ever experienced any negativity because of the way he looked either then or post-surgery. But it is it, it can be a very isolating and lonely experience. I, I was always very hands-on with him and, and my other children. And that's it's something actually that I have also written. I've, I've written, um, I do write as well. Um, and I've written something about our instincts, maternal instincts, um, or parental instincts even, how it is that we don't um, trust them so much. Uh, we have so much information uh, and, you know, either all of it or some of it is certainly valuable. Uh, I read, you know, books just as probably every other prospective parent uh, reads. But I sort of, um, after a while, sort of just trusted my instincts and they've, they've served me well. And also the instincts of our cultures and our ancestors. And I really, I really believe that people sort of ask me things, well, how did you manage... I've got four children, um, and you know my eldest he's 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 deaf. Uh, he has a condition called Charge Syndrome. Um, so there was a lot of extra care needed for him while bringing up the others. Um, but I just went with those instincts, and the other uh, the other children weren't neglected. Everything was shared. Everything. Yeah, we we managed. We managed together. Um, and the things that sometimes the external sort of pressures of whether, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to say anything that will offend anyone, but for me, they, they were, there were certain things that were just, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if the children didn't have, I remember at the time, gap clothes, baby gap was a big thing when they were young, you know, and everybody wanted those. And, and there was a part of me that was like, yeah. Yeah, I want to, but you know, I had four children. I couldn't afford to have, you know, four lot, you know, all. But it didn't really matter, and and I let go of all of those things, and I was happy letting go of those things. And as things have panned out, I think I made the right decisions. And that's not for any one moment saying that all of the information is not necessary. As I said, I read a lot. 
that hook, but it was, I found my path by looking inward rather than just outward. Wow. And you, and were you able to do this when you were a young mum or is this something that you've come into as you've, you've, you know, as your children have grown? Mm-hmm. No, actually right from the beginning, I remember just once, one single, single occasion with my eldest, he must have been, I don't know, months old, so maybe six months, maybe maybe up to a year because his development was, development was delayed. And that whole thing of putting a child down to sleep in a separate room yes. and then leaving them and letting them cry. I did that only once and I hated myself for doing it because he cried uh, and I left him and he cried and I left him. Um, but then I, I, I don't think I even left him for the night. I think I picked him up and I just took him back into the cot in my room. And I did the same with all of them. And I'm not, again, I'm not telling people what to do, but it worked with all four of them for me. I just had a cot in my room. And it's something that in my culture, um, I'm from a British Pakistani uh, woman. Um, it is very common. Children sleep with their mothers in beds and so on. And again, I know that the um, guidelines are not, you shouldn't have children in your bed. And I didn't have them in uh, bed with me. They were in their cot. Um, but yeah, they were in my room until they were old enough at the age of two. Well, when the next one came along, usually, which was there about two and a half years between them. Um, and then, you know, they, it was a, a natural thing that happened. And um, yeah, somehow, as I said, I, I trusted my instinct, instincts. I, you know, was aware of my own culture. And while there were many things about my culture that I was rejecting and rebelling against, uh, quietly, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it didn't really work very well to be very vocal in my culture. I did it my way while holding on to the, the good things uh, and inherited those and kept those. Um, and as I said, it seems to have, you know, panned out reasonably well. You know, life is always throwing challenges, uh, you know, our way, but we get through it. And yeah, looking back, I, I wouldn't do it um, any other way. So tell me, you, so you had four children. If you could tell me the mm-hmm. age gap between mm-hmm. them, just so that I can get an understanding of yes. yeah, what it was like. So the um, first three, there's um, two and a half between each of them. So they were like sort of born and two and a half and five years old. And then there was a four year gap between um, the three and the, the fourth child. Yeah. And how did you know when it was time for them to... I suppose it was more practical in the sense that, you know, I couldn't have had two in the bedroom, there wouldn't have been space. And I, I again, sort of where I am now, but I, I, I sort of went with it at the time, but looking back on it, I must have been making space, sort of psychological space and moving yes. them with, do you know what I mean? And I think that might, yes. you know, whether the child knew or so on, somehow it was sort of, um, so it wasn't that, you know, they, it was one day they were in the cot and one day they were in the bed. There's the whole process yes. of making the, you know, getting the bed, getting, getting the bedroom ready. ready. Yeah. yeah. And so they were, you know, getting the new things. That, yeah. Well, first time around, it was new things in the bedroom. Um, with the same, you know, when the third child, it was like, okay, you're going to get your brother in with you in that room. Um, and, and also there was never any reason that they couldn't get out of bed and come to me uh, in my bedroom. Um, and, you know, I would do what was necessary to settle them and, and take them back. Um, and I don't recall any any moment. I mean, I, I I absolutely am not saying that this is the only way of doing things. Every child is different. Every mother is different. Every situation is different in that how we manage our lives. I think I have realized 
mainly because other people have said to me, how did you manage? And I can't really answer that question other than I must have a lot of resilience because I was exhausted at times, um, absolutely exhausted. Um, I remember, you know, taking all three of them, putting them into the car when I had to take my eldest to hospital for an appointment. I also didn't have a lot of support locally. I have family and they were supportive, but everybody has their lives. So you know, time wasn't available for people to accompany me to hospital. I'm also the worst at asking people for help. So I pretty much did it by myself. And I think I, I did, I just did muster up energy which I, I don't know where from. Once the children had got much older into their teens, I think I did have a period where I was actually clinically exhausted. Uh, I, I just didn't know what had happened uh, and sort of going to the GP and, you know, um, they said, you, you know, yeah, it's just exhaustion. And I thought, how can that be? You know, I don't, I don't get exhausted. I keep going. Um, but I was, I was, I, I didn't realise how much I was just not stopping to think about myself. And that is something, you know, much later in life uh, I have and am now paying attention and, and caring for myself because, I, I didn't do that, um, which I, you know, that is one thing I would say to my younger self is alongside, you know, I chose to have four children. It was a deliberate choice. And, but yeah, so I would say to my younger self, yeah, by all means, have as many children as you want and you feel you, you know, can manage, but remember to look after yourself. Yes. It's so important. Mm. And it can be so difficult. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. We know about that because, yeah, we if we choose to work outside the home, you still have, you know, pretty much. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are, uh, you know, people in partnerships where it, it's equally shared. But I have to say, from my personal experience and and anecdotal experience from the people I meet, that the burden of looking after a home and children does fall on women. Yes. And um, so you, your children are grown young adults. You, you just mentioned that your son is actually, mm -hmm. your eldest son is 28. So I was going to say, yeah. how has motherhood changed you over the years? Yes, um, it's an interesting question. I, I don't, I can't, it's very difficult to answer that. I don't, perhaps I, I wouldn't say that it's changed me, but I think it has just helped me to grow further. Um, I, I am a, person who I'm I continue to learn in life I didn't just do things and then stop and stop learning I have a curiosity and I keep finding new things that to occupy me so that's one part of my life and, and that's you know me as a person but I think being a mother I think it has helped me to grow in other ways it's very difficult I suppose if you are a mother you don't know what not being a mother is like so it's very a difficult question to answer yeah, because, you know, I, I have found that being a mum has made me really start reflecting on my life mm. and my my relationship with my mother oh, yes. and <laughs> my childhood. Yes, 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 oh, yes. Gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. In such a deep way. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. Yes. It's, <laughs> the journey's just been yeah. pretty intense. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. No, I totally get you on that one. Yeah, actually, yes, that's a whole... In a way, I, I think I heard the question differently. Um, when I look at that, yes, I, 
Um, as I mentioned, sort of migrant women histories, and obviously, not obviously because I haven't told you, I, I was born in Pakistan and my family moved to uh, mm-hmm. England when I was um, 19 months old. So mm-hmm. this is my home. London has been my home always. But when not so much when I became a mother, but when I trained um, as a therapist, then I started to look at my relationship with my mother uh, in depth. I perhaps reflected on it somewhat, but I think I was just so busy with the children and with my eldest, I think I didn't have time to reflect. Um, and initially I was very upset and angry and hurt and also, you know, all so many emotions about why my mother wasn't the mother that I chose to be. Um, mm. But I then realized that she, you know, she had her challenges of being uh, she, you know, we came to this country for, you know, my father came for work, but, you know, now that I understand more about partition and how <laughs> an empire, you know, that that's a whole another thing. So they were choices that people made, but it was choices that they were in a way forced to make because of the aftermath of what empire had done to um, our countries, our home homelands. Um, so, you know, they were here in a foreign land that made them that was very unwelcoming where they were othered uh, and my mother you know was from you know we were from a, a village and she'd grown up in a village and suddenly you're in a town like London which is cold and then people are un- unwelcoming mm-hmm. you don't speak the language so I, I I understood that perhaps she just became shut down and paralyzed within her trauma and couldn't be the mother that I needed her to be. So it was, a, it was a long path to sort of going through the hurt and the sort of feeling so many things I can't even sort of articulate. But I felt that I wasn't really parented. But I'd moved beyond that to forgive her and forgive us as a, you know, as a mother-daughter uh, unit, um, to move beyond that and understand that she did the best that she could. Um, but it did make me become a sort of very determined, very hands-on, you know, all of my energy went into ensuring that my children's, you know, nothing nothing was, uh, as far as I could, nothing was left uh, unattended. So can you just tell me a little bit, you know, because there might be some people that don't really know the history of what happened mm-hmm. at the partition and how the circumstances under which your mum came to the UK. Again, it, it's so long and complicated. I'm not a historian, um, but... <laughs> I, I think I really would uh, recommend that people find their own way to it. Um, but we know that, uh, you know, uh, the British were there for a couple of centuries when the partition occurred. The, the dividing line was done very hastily by someone who had never even visited India. The, the I mean, it was the number of people, I, I think it was, I'm going to get the figures wrong because I'm, I'm not a historian, but I think it was three million people died in during the partition. There was violence, people who, had, you know, in the morning were neighbours and had lived together forever. By the evening, they were killing each other. And, and there's been so much written about it. There's a wonderful um, play that I, I just watched recently called Silence um, by Tara Arts. At, it was at the Donmar and it's at, on their theatre and may just have finished, I think. And it takes uh, stories of partition, um, which is a book by Kavita Puri, 
but she has also been collecting um, stories of survivors of partition because those people are, you know, we've just had the uh, 75th anniversary. So those people are dying. So we won't have anyone who's alive to tell us those stories. Yes. And, th- and that's where my interest also, you know, the sort of migrant women histories uh, lies because, you know, women's stories aren't really, don't really have much space. And while I was collecting some stories, I, there's, there's a, a couple of women who experienced partition and one of them as a very young child was separated from her family. And I, I knew her very uh, sort of distantly, if you see what I mean. Um, she was uh, a relative of some friends of mine. So I, I had met her and, um, you know, but I would never have known that she carried this story. And it was amazing to, to discover. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, people who meet her every day will not know that story because she didn't offer it. She didn't want to reference it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of trauma just as, you know, and then my, uh, the, the project is not about any one area of the world. Um, so I have stories of uh, women who, you know, the, the Windrush uh, generation. And obviously, you know, there's heartache and trauma there. It's um, when I set out to do the project, um, I, I'm sorry, I have digressed somewhat, but uh, I do, do apologise. But when I set out to do the project, I expected a, a mix of stories, you know, some uplifting, some heavy and so on. But so far, they, migration seems to just present challenges and, and not that there isn't any, um, that there aren't any positives, you know, um, absolutely, absolutely there are. But it is so important to recognise what displacement or migration, um, whether it's by choice or, you know, as we know with war, when people don't have a choice, what else might be going on for people? Yeah, I'd read on one of your posts that um, you had said that your life journey has led you to an exploration of identity, ancestral mm. trauma, migration and displacement. Yeah. So I was wondering, actually, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about this. I know you've just talked about migration yeah i mean yeah essentially it is sort of what i've been talking about but yes so as you know as a young person i you know i was just me um i didn't think of myself as brown or white or black or you know i was just a child and i've heard other people um speak about the same and and and, and that's the, the power of sharing and that's why i want to sort of have this uh, the project but to get people to just start sharing those things that perhaps we don't even realize that we've locked away but this thing of uh, um, i can't remember his um it's a playwright writer and he said that he he's from an african country but i'm not sure which one so i won't say but he said he was uh, only realized he was um or he became a black man when he came to the uk before that he was just a man yeah. and i feel that i was a child and i went to school and then suddenly i was I don't even, at that point, I didn't even know what I was, but obviously I was a brown girl or an Indian girl or something. Um, and it changed things, you know, almost overnight. Yeah, I, I was so excited about going to school and suddenly it was, it was a very, very lonely experience throughout school. And when I said to people, you know, most of my young childhood and then young adulthood was lonely, they said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? But it, it's simple as that. It was lonely because, thankfully, you know, London has definitely changed. I'm not sure, you know, how much change has gone on outside of the bigger cities in the UK. Because sadly, I still hear people speaking of experiences that they are having today, 
which you know I experienced, and I thought things would change. I, I think I, would, I must have been very naive to imagine that things would change. But um, so yes, yeah, so I think you know I didn't choose to start out that exploration. It, it sort of you know it happened to me. So going through yeah school it was lonely. Um, you know I did have friends, but you always the, I was always the friend that was sort of it was a school time friend, the one that wasn't really invited to things outside of school one who wasn't really invited home so you know that sort of um, experience and then I've had good and bad so you know it hasn't been all negative so something is in some areas of my life it it didn't seem to impact but uh, yeah and then I'm also a Muslim woman so then you know that that has also been another aspect later in life Um, for a while I wore the hijab a, a choice that I made both to wear it and then not to wear it so there are so many ways that a person can be othered. I'm just wondering, so your experience as a child in school and and not really making many friends, I'm wondering, how has that impacted you as a mother Mm. raising your children? I'm not sure if your children, how they identify culturally. Uh, Yeah, they're also sort of British Pakistani, yeah. yeah. Yes, I I made a, a very deliberate choice that I wouldn't let my experiences sort of tarnish their experience. So Mm. I didn't... um, until very recently tell them what I'm telling you today. So they weren't aware of any of this when they were children. I think that's very important for parents um, Mm. to separate those things, to separate our own experience from a child's experience and not to make, not to let it colour their experience, to let them, you know, to have that fresh experience. So, yes, I, I remained open um, to whatever friendships were coming their way, if things didn't yes. happen, it didn't work out. I didn't immediately say, "Oh my gosh, it must be racism," <laughs> because yes, you know, quite yes. often it's not. Children are children, you know. That age, especially primary school, gosh, it's just you know, kids are just kids, and they just you know, they either play with you or they they'll fall out, but it will be some other reason usually. Um, and thankfully, yes. by the time they were in primary school, I was living in a very multicultural area. The school was you know very mixed whereas when I was at school I was either you know one or two two of us in the whole school that wasn't white um so that was a lot easier so it was just you know it, I, it was easy to let them go at the you know, gates and say go off and play um but my main thing was to not let my experience uh color their experience yes amazing and so you know, in this quote you also talk about ancestral trauma what your mother experienced when she came to the UK your parents experienced when they came to the UK and how you've managed to navigate your life and being a mum. Yeah, I, I think with the weight that we carry of, of ancestral trauma, I think we can't be expected to know what it is and what it means, you know, as, as young people, as we are growing up. You know, I, I, I wrote something recently. I'm going to be speaking at a conference, and I, I wrote that at the time I didn't really understand how other people, both as both children and, and you know, old, you know, adults, I, I would notice that people sort of tread lightly or play very lightly and freely. And I didn't quite understand. I was aware of it, but not consciously. It was a subconscious thing of noticing this. And I think it is because of what we carry, what we carry over generations. And I know that there is research about epigenetics so that, you know, I Genetics have been changed over generations, but there is hope and we can change those uh, with good experiences we can repair. So that was a really positive thing to read. But 
yes, the genetics show that we we have been you know we have been changed by the trauma, so, uh, successive trauma over generations. But as, as but as we go through life, as we as everyone knows, and everyone you know, especially with social media, everyone is talking about. And trauma is a word which is used quite loosely these days. So I, I get you know we need to be a little more care, careful how we use it. You know, it can be something that I might consider very trivial and someone will be posting something say, oh my gosh, I was so traumatized by this. But I think that when I notice people who are carrying the weight of their own trauma and then ancestral trauma, they walk differently. They carry themselves differently. I was just thinking that. I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. And even the way people walk yes. and their shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. Like I see black absolutely. Women. Yeah. Yes, yes. And my heart, oh my goodness. And you know who moves me the most? And it makes I'm getting emotional now because it <sighs> happens every time. The one that gets me the most is young black men. Oh. And I see the light in their eyes and it's gone. Yeah. And it breaks my heart every time because these are young men who should have every opportunity, but every single day they have to get out of their homes and face this world, which is set up to sort of make them fail. And yeah. I mean, I have an interest in schools. I've been a school governor previously, and I just really am passionate about how I do it. I don't know. <laughs> I just try and do my little bit about mm -hmm. making sure that people, everyone has the pathways and opportunities and the self-belief and the acknowledgement that they are just as good as everyone else. And it's not even, you know what, it's everyone is, else is as good as they are. Because these, oh my goodness, yes, that is where, where I, think we, I think we hold trauma. And there is a hierarchy of trauma. And I recognize that as a brown woman, and I'm a light-skinned brown woman, I recognize my privilege. Um, and so, yes, yeah, I totally, I mean, and that's important for people to recognize. And there are there are people who are talking about that, you know, brown on black racism and so on. Um, you know, it's, uh, and everyone, everyone needs to, you know, I, I as a, a Muslim, I, I had, you know, Islamophobic comments from black people as well mm. as, you know, other people. So it's, but it's, everyone needs to recognize their privilege and their prejudices that they hold. Um, but yeah, I think, yes, that, and how we navigate that on a daily basis, I can't answer that because, goodness, it's such a huge question um, and it's it's such a huge thing to manage. So that's why I feel that if we talk with each other, if we share our stories, you know, my interest is women and migrant women, but I encourage everyone, you know, the, the quiet Asian men, the quiet black men who you see them in our communities and, and they, you know, they might have one or two friends that they might. I, my father used to play cards with people and he would smoke with people, but he never spoke about his his life. And that's what I feel a lot of, you know, the older generation, there's not that many older generations left anymore uh, relative to myself now. But um, And now when I have conversations with women um, and I, I do enjoy meeting and having conversations with older women and, uh, you know, people say to me oh, when they're talking about the project and, the last time I spoke to a group of people presented the project and, and this lovely, lovely, I fall in love with all of these women. There's a, a woman 
um, uh, I think she was from Jamaica, but certainly one of the islands. And she, she came and she started stroking my arm and she said, oh, thank you for doing this work and thank you. And she was, and then she said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm stroking. I said, no, please carry on because I'm loving that. Keep stroking my arm and then I'll, I'll, I'll t we'll take it in turns and I'll stroke your arm. But the fact that she was thanking me for doing this work, but I, I, what I say is that the work is the story. The, 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 you know, the stories do the work of connecting us, of helping us to share our trauma, to hold our trauma collectively and hopefully to repair some of, yeah. some of that and up, you know, uplift ourselves and, and nourish ourselves and heal ourselves. Uh, healing through stories, that, that's what I feel, that you know, whether you write your story down, whether you talk to your friend, your neighbour, your anyone, um, and, and cross-generational yes. sharing of stories. You know, I, I, you know, I've lost one parent, you know, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to sort of ask my grandparents more. I only met them a few times, but, you know, if I were this self now, I'd be sort of recording everything they said and taking lots of photographs and so on. But, you know, yeah, so I, I encourage everyone just, you know, in whichever way, even if it's TikTok, which, which I do not use, but, you know, that's, that's an age thing. But whatever, whatever method is good for you, just use it and share your stories, share your experiences. And, and actually one other thing, which was a big learning on my training, learn to listen. We all think we listen, but we don't. We really need to stop and really, really listen. Yes, I agree. It's something I'm learning to do mm, more and more, mm. especially with my children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The migrant women histories. I guess let's talk about that first, mm. just so that people understand what it is, actually. So if you could just yeah. briefly just tell us what is the yeah. Migrant Women Histories Project that yeah, you've been talking sure. about. Yeah, um, sure. So as I said earlier, I've, I've sort of spent the last few years giving myself a bit of time and space for my writing and my art. Um, and when I was sort of researching some stuff for my art, I came across a book, a picture of uh, a very grand Indian man in a, a very sort of uh, palatial looking room. And there were lots of portraits on the walls, but there was not a single portrait of a woman. They were all men. And that just sparked something in me. And it must have been something that was I've held for a long time because I've always felt that, you know, as women, we... We get a raw deal and it's tough being a woman. Uh, I don't have to explain that to you. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it was um, at the beginning of the pandemic and I just thought, actually, I, I, I want stories. I want stories of women and somehow because, you know, my, those people around me, somehow the migrant thing and, the, the, as I said, the displacement of, of people who just from one what was home to another place, which is called home, but is it ever home? Uh, all of those questions. And so I started to, to sort of formulate this idea, ask my children, you know, what, where should it, would be the best place do they think to you know, put this? And I said, you know, Facebook. And they just laughed at me and said, mum, no one uses Facebook anymore. So, okay, fair enough. And I, I never I never allowed them when they were, you know, children still to use social media. So um, I didn't know, you know, I hadn't used it. So then anyway, they said Instagram. And actually Instagram, uh, which I then sort of familiarised myself with, is, is not a bad platform if you, you know, use it in a, a measured way, it's actually very good. And so I started collecting stories of people either I knew directly and then other people, um, a few people contacted me um, and then the others that I sort of, you know, indirectly knew. And we've got a, a lovely collection of stories, all of them 
I just, I, as I said earlier, I fall in love with every single person. They are just amazing. And, and yeah, they blow me away. They move me to tears. They just uplift me. The resilience of these women uh, who I call extraordinary, ordinary women, because they walk around and we don't know what they are holding. And actually someone said that to me, that yes, these women are walking around and I wouldn't, you know, we'd probably pass them in the street and we would never know what they hold. You mentioned you know, the migrant bit and then this question about where is home or what is home? Yes, it's, it's such a big question. I think it's something that, uh, yeah, I continue to reflect on um, whether I, especially as I, I, I've migrated, but it wasn't me, it wasn't my choice, but I you know, was moved from my home as I knew it uh, when I was still essentially a baby. Uh, my siblings had time in Pakistan where they have memories of that time. And I, I feel quite envious of that, of people who who had, you know, had that sort of experience in, in the land which in which they were born. So, yeah, I, I haven't yet come to an answer where, you know, I, I do have homes. You know, I have the home that I live in and London is my home. More than Britain, I feel London is you know, definitely, you know, I am a through and through Londoner. But, yeah, it's something that I continue to reflect on and uh, certainly within my therapy circles and uh, you know, people of colour, um, part of a, a therapist network, uh, Barton, which is Black African Asian Therapist Network. It's something that we, you know, continually to speak about uh, and reflect on and, you know, learn from each other. And I think it will be something that will continue generations to come. And that was the other thing you know, uh, with Migrant Women Histories. Um, I have 15 stories that I've collected, but I hope to, you know, have a whole in a database of them so that when future generations want to look back and say, you know, this is where I, where did I come, you know, where were my ancestors from, where I want to hear the stories of that land, there's somewhere that they can go. And I know there are other resources as well. I'm not saying that you know, this will be the only one, but the more resources we have, the better, because there are, there are things that my children, having been born, born in London, grown up here, there's a disconnect between here and, and Pakistan and and despite me thinking that I had imparted myself my culture you know that we you know we yes. were there is a disconnect and and that will you know there, there are other people who are you know second third generation already um, uh, yeah so and, and that's you know not just from Pakistan but from all different parts of the world you know you look at most schools in London you have many many different backgrounds and languages being spoken and so on and yeah one day you know these, these kids will be looking and saying you know where I want to know more and I would love this sort of resource because I I don't want to make it academic I just want it to be a real sort of lived stories that people can just read and that hopefully transport them and and certainly when I read them even if I when I reread them it it just impacts me and and there's a book called My Grandmother's Hand by Resma Menachem I think that's how you pronounce the name and I can send you the details afterwards. Um, and he talks about the similar sort of thing about, you know, repairing um, our tra- trauma through this sharing. And if it can be done in person, I think that's the best best way of doing uh, this work is if we sit together. As our elders used to, it's a, you know, the storytelling culture is it's sort of has been lost. And I, I lament that, I, you know, I hope that we can recreate that. My next step is to sort of have, workshops where we get together and we you know share stories uh, in in that fashion of all the stories that you've you've collect, collected at the moment which would you say which stories impacted you the most 
and why, if there has been one? There may not be one. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that question is like if someone says to you, "Who's your favorite child?" Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's I, yeah. I really can't. I can't possibly, and I, and that's the truth. Even as you know, when people, some people still ask that crazy question with regards to your own children. There is absolutely no way I can, you know, uh, say that I have. A, I don't have a favorite. Um, I, as I said, and the thing that I I will repeat always is that I fall in love with them. I fall in love with these women, young and old, and I, I truly hold them in my heart. And the connections we make, um, you know, some of them I most of them I've spoken to directly. Some of them it was daughters speaking about their mothers and so on. So I didn't have the the, the pleasure of meeting. Some have passed away and so on. But whichever person I've connected with, connection is so rich. And even if we don't keep in touch, we will always be connected. You know, if the contact is you know intermittent since we you know put the story together, it doesn't matter because we've connected on it in a different way. Yes, yes. I wanted to mention you you've written under migrant women mm. histories this these points about. There was no voice mm. regarding an education for these women mm. and no voice of when and whom to marry, no voice within the marriage, no yeah. voice concerning migration, no voice when faced with a mostly hostile culture, no voice when suffering loneliness and isolation, and no voice when symptoms of mental mm. health issues presented, and then finally no voice when self-sabotage yes. set in, and the greatest silence became the self. Right. Can you just talk a little bit about that last bit? Yes. Yeah, I think when I look at, I'll start with my own community, um, but I think there are parallels, certainly with the Windrush generation. And as I said, I've shared stories and or people have shared their stories with me and, and, and other plays and writing and stuff that I've seen. I think what it is, is when that person becomes so traumatised, and my father is an example as well, they shut down. And so any attempt by anyone external is met with hostility. So that's where I feel that they self-sabotage because if, you know, people are, if someone is reaching out to them to help them in, in whatever way, they, they can't do it, they can't accept it. And that's where I feel that that final level of where you just can't, I can't understand fully. I can understand that the, yet the trauma has shut down all of all of the sort of parts of us that drive, the drives, the drives that to survive. It's almost as though they are ready to give up and are preparing to die. And I know, you know, people, I've spoken to people in my, you know, directly spoken to people who are just waiting to die. And that's what I feel that they might be waiting for 20 years to die. That's a long time of waiting. Oh, what? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. They can't, yes. there's, there's no hope for them to continue. Yes. Things, so and then sometimes waiting. I think there's this cycle of if I, if I am not this helpless victim then what am I because they've never for so long they haven't been anything else that they don't know how to be anything else so it's, it's very sad it's very sad to see people when the, that light in their eyes is gone and I'm sure you you know I think we're sort of talking about the same sort of things is that when you see that sort of distant look in their eyes and you know they, they, it's, it's just they've, they've gone somewhere else these are our mothers and mm. our aunts and absolutely but, but but my thing is that you know, there's was there's a lot of fear for me even to just just come out and say, okay, I want to create a platform, and so I totally I get guess, you. I totally get you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes. I'm I feel like I'm on the ledge. I'm on a ledge. <laughs> yes, I totally because yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I think there is something about in, in our communities where we're not used to showcasing ourselves 
we don't we don't do that we've been taught to hide ourselves because it yes. to keep out of the spotlight keep out of trouble don't be noticed because we're noticed every day because of our color and so we could we and, and then as women it's certainly in my culture i won't speak for yours but certainly in my culture as women it was like no we don't want to listen we don't want to just just keep quiet and so yes it, that's why it's so uncomfortable i mean you know as i'm talking to you and so on it's, it's yeah and this whole project you know I don't tell people, I don't tell all of my, um, you know, my wider family. I only, I've only told select people within yes. my family because there is that sort of thing because I'm waiting for someone to attack me because it's just, that's the way it is. Yes. We, as I said, we don't, we're not taught to showcase ourselves. No. And, you know, we do have to change that so gradually, but it's bloody hard work. It's bloody yes. hard work being, you know, the one. It is. I haven't told yeah, you all my family. And that's why, you know, you... Yeah, and that's why when you reached out, I was like, yes, you know, I, I looked at your podcast, saw who you were, and it was like, yes, I've got to do this because, you know, we've got to support each other so then we can yes. support others to start doing this. Um, and break the silence, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Oh. I, again, as I said, I'm speaking tomorrow and I've written, we can either inherit inherit silence or we can inherit stories. That's lovely. I mean, um, I'd say my final question, really, your, the, my little girl piece. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I was so moved. I really felt connected to the pieces. Um, I'm thank you for saying that. I'm 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 really touched and moved and pleased that it resonated with you, because it was hard to put that out there for all of the reasons we we're speaking and we've just been speaking about. I have to say that when I reread it, I get moved because yeah, um, and I, and and I explain to people that you know I'm I'm not still in that place. But I carry that little girl within me. But now I make sure that I look after her in the way that she should have been looked after and nurture her in the way. And I think that's been really important for all of us who are carrying our younger selves that, you know, where the, the needs weren't met or we faced hostility, you know, outside of the home, sometimes within the homes, um, you know, but wherever, whatever we are carrying, really, really pay attention to your younger selves and nurture them in the way that you would have wanted to be nurtured but yes I, I put that story out there because it is hard it is really really hard to put something like that out there but yes yeah, so could you just explain what it is for the people who haven't read it and they won't know just oh, yes of course yeah <laughs> yes so it was um it was a writing exercise which someone was doing and they had sort of completed it was a, they had done it and it was you know they it was complete what they were doing but the the the, uh, prompt was grief and loss that's for me when I write I don't need much that's all I need is just a word or two and I wrote it over a weekend and it was about the grief and loss that I carry from my life my childhood mainly and so I wrote about how it was being so alone but you know the childhood naivety where you sort of keep going back to school keep going back because you think it'll be better, but it didn't really get better. Um, so I, I, well, I had to keep going until, you know, such time where I, as an adult, was able to look after the little Nyla, my little girl. And the line that always gets me in that piece is uh, about that I told no one because I, I didn't know there was, I can't even remember the line properly, but uh, not knowing that there was something to tell and not having anyone to tell. Um, so, oh, you didn't that's, tell that's anybody a, that you were, yeah. that you felt lonely. None of I never told anyone anything because I think we were as a family we were all just managing and there was I didn't know I didn't know that I could go and tell my mum I could go and tell somebody you know a sibling or anything I didn't know so every day I could, you know when I would come home I never shared anything with anyone 
until mm. you know I was I don't know in my thirties or forties. And let me ask you, so your siblings, the relationships that you had with your siblings weren't able to sort of balance out, I guess, the hostility from school? No, no, because, yeah, like I said, it really was, um, it, yeah, no, I mean, I won't go into sort of the, the, the more personal things, but not because there was yeah. any ill will. We all love each other, but we, we the, the impact of the, our family's migration is there for everyone to see. So we are there for each other when we need, you know, we, we, we love each other. If anyone is, you know, needs help, we are there. But we don't spend much time with each other. And how can that be when you have no animosity and you have no nothing, you know, against each other? There's nothing that is keeping us apart. But we don't talk much. Even now, or is this yeah, then? Yeah, even now, even now. Yeah, this is At the time, you know, people are sort of, and, you know, it's um, it's something that, you know, I've reflected on, um, but to try and repair all of those ruptures that have gone across yes. the family, you know, one person can't do that. No, and, you know, systemic. I, I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm trying to hold myself together at this point yes. in my life and care for, you know, the grown-up Nyla as well as the little Nyla, so... And I think that's what, you know, my siblings are also doing. I think, you know, I, and I do say that to them. You know, I definitely say that to them is, you know, to pay attention to yourself and, and put yourselves first and, and nurture yourselves. Yes, that really resonates with me because I feel I'm going on this journey of, I guess, exploration and sort of mm. understanding a little bit more of self-awareness, I would say. Yes. But yeah. with that self-awareness becomes the awareness of all the trauma and all the other stuff that Absolutely. existed in my home. And that I'm seeing yeah. has an impact on my relationships. Yeah. But yeah. I'm still trying to navigate that in in a, in a healthy or balanced way. I'm still yeah trying yeah. to figure all that out. And it's a long and it's a long and tough path. And it, you know there will be no end to that navigation. You'll you'll continue that. It you know it, it will something will keep coming up. Um, but yes, and, and as you said, that awareness. I think that is what can help one is that you just keep yourself in a different place. That's what I, I did with myself is that I felt prior to sort of becoming more aware, I was very much in the thick of it. And with awareness, I was able to sort of pull myself out of yes. the mess. Yes. And then, you know, stand alongside or to one side and in yes. a way observe even myself how the system, you know, was working and, and so yes. on. And, and that's what's helped me. But, you know, it will be an on, ongoing journey of navigation, I think, for the rest of my life. Yes, mm. mine too. So finally, if someone would like to contact you or they'd, they'd like to contribute to the project, what would be yeah. the best um, way? Instagram at Migrant Women Histories um, and otherwise an email, migrantwomenhistories at gmail.com. Okay, great. Well, Nyla, thank you so much for this time. It's been so amazing. And um, thank you, yeah, thank it's you. been great having you.